0: Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going through a series that we had started last year uh, and just recently jumped back into on the life of David. King David, one of the most famous figures in Scripture, one of the most well-known. We've been looking at his life, um, going through it slowly and, you know, uh, working on uh, really, really understanding all the meaning that's in this. So 1 Samuel chapter 22 is where we are today. First Samuel chapter twenty-two. I'm hearing a really odd, like, echo or feedback or something. Is that just me, or does it, do y'all hear that out there too? That's just me. Okay. Oh no, some of y'all do hear it. Okay. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm not sure where that's coming from. I'm assuming from the speakers. No, it's not the sound. But no, no, no. I'm hearing like a. It's like an echo. Just whenever I talk. Check, check. That, that sounds, yeah, still a little bit. All right, but we're, we're going to keep moving along, and, and, and the guys will get it worked out. All right, so we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 22. I'm going to be, we're, we're, we're talking about the whole chapter today, but I'm just going to read the first part of it. So we're going to start in verse 1, and then uh, and then go on from there. So in First Samuel chapter 22, and starting in verse 1, it says, So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with, me, uh, stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hareth. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So we're going to pause there in the reading, but uh, we'll, we'll be talking about everything that happens in this chapter today. And, and one of the things that occurs is right after. Um, Right after this part here, where, uh, where Saul is increasing in his paranoia and is uh, berating his men because of how uh, they have been, in his words or in his view, conspiring against him, there's one man who, who, who speaks up who was named Doeg the Edomite. Now, if you're with us the past couple of weeks or if you've read this, this section here, then that name is familiar to you because in chapter 21, whenever David had went to the tabernacle to the, to the priest Ahimelech, for help gaining provisions, gaining some food and his weapon. Uh, it says it, it said there in the narrative, and just a little bit of an aside, that there was a man there who was named Doeg the Edomite who was listening to what they were talking about. So Doeg, who was this servant of Saul, just happened to be there listening and knew uh, where David had been and that Ahimelech had helped David. And so he speaks up and tells Saul uh, where David had been and who had helped him as Saul is, is berating against them. And so what happens immediately after this is, is a really a terrible, terrible scene. Uh, Saul orders that Ahimelech and all of the priesthood, because there wasn't just one priest, you understand, there was, there was a whole family that would make up the priesthood. That's how it worked. And so, uh, so Ahimelech and the entire family, the entire priesthood, which it says was about 85 men, came to Saul uh, where he was, uh, he was in Gibeah. They came to Saul in Gibeah uh, from Nob and uh, to to answer to him. And so Saul puts them essentially on this on this trial. Uh, he starts questioning them. And he starts questioning Ahimelech. Why did you help David? Why are you conspiring against me? And Ahimelech is trying to somewhat plead his innocence, saying, saying, Look, you know, I I wasn't trying to work against you. I was just trying to help David. I've I, I've known David. I've known the he was one of your servants. Um, and so <coughs> right, so I was just trying to help him out. Well, Saul, being the paranoid tyrant that he was, didn't take that as an answer and ordered his men to kill Ahimelech and all the other priests. So all 85 men that were there, the entire priesthood of Israel, he ordered them to be slaughtered. His men refused, but then this man Doeg, so who was the one hiding in the tabernacle, who was the one who spoke up, now speaks up again and says, I'll do it. And so it says that with his own hand, he slayed all of the priests, except for one, uh, one of Ahimelech's sons named uh, ah- No, I'm sorry, named Abiathar, escaped and, and found his way to David. But he slaughtered all of the other priesthood. But he didn't just stop there. He then went back to Nob, which is where the priests uh, in the tabernacle were at the time, and he uh, carried further carried out his genocide by slaying all of the families of those men that. Uh, who had uh, who were priests who had gone to see Saul? All their families are still back in Nob. And Doeg the Edomite goes; he slays all their family. It says it says that all the women and children. and He slays all the livestock. Just wreaks absolute devastation and, and havoc. So that's what happens after this section that we just read here. This horrible genocide happens, and so here in, in 1 Samuel twenty-two, as you know, this division and this really uh, battle between David and Saul has been building. The drama is incredibly high. It, there's a lot of tension, um, and it's 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 really something that's quite horrible to look at. But here's the thing that we need to understand about Scripture: the Bible is always very, very realistic. About the reality of evil, it does not shy away from it, does not sugarcoat, um, and it, it does not sweep under the rug any of the reality of of evil in our world, or of wickedness, or what happens whenever the the evil and wicked are in power, which is what we see here in First Samuel twenty two. It's a horrible scene. It is describing genocide to us. It's describing the slaughter of of hundreds of innocent people, men, women, and children at the hand of Saul and Doeg the Edomite. But the Bible shows us this because it is incredibly realistic about the reality of wickedness, about the reality of tyrants and their lackeys, and about the reality of of, uh, sin's opposition to the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, that is what is happening here. We're going to see that as we, as we draw this out more in a second. But this is about opposition to the kingdom of God. And the Bible is incredibly realistic about that opposition, uh, just how terrible it can be. But there's also this. While it is realistic about the reality of, of, of evil and of evil's opposition to the kingdom of God, it is also realistic about why we should ultimately take hope. About why we should ultimately take hope in the face of any opposition, in the face of any tyrants and their lackeys, or in the face of any wickedness. And so, what we learn in this story is it presents us with this picture that's hard to look at, but which is very real. Uh, we we learn several incredible lessons, but what it really teaches us about, uh, or what I want to, the, th- the part that I really want to emphasize, is that it teaches us how to survive opposition uh, to, king- to the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at the righteous minority in this passage. There's a righteous minority. There is the powerful wicked. And then we're going to look at how that teaches us how to survive opposition. So we're going to see the righteous minority, the powerful wicked, and then how to survive opposition. So the righteous minority. David and his family are on on the run at this point. We've already seen, like I said, if you've been with us, uh, in, in the series so far, we've already seen how David is, is on the run from Saul because Saul has has broken any semblance or any pretending at all that there's still a relationship between him and David, that there's any hope of reconciliation. He is going out for David's head. And so there's been this break in the relationship. David is on the run. Now, it says here in, in chapter 22 that whenever uh, David's family hears, it says whenever his brothers and his whole family hears of what's going on, they also go on the run. no, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because whenever you look at uh, totalitarian regimes or whenever you look at tyrants, even tyrants up until today, whenever you look at uh, tyrannical regimes whether it be in North Korea or other places, what happens to uh, to to political resistors or to people who, who step up to the tyrant? Well, usually they're thrown in prison or executed, but you know what else? usually their entire family is going after as well. Like I said, we still see that happening today in North Korea, and it happened back then as well. Uh, it happened in the Roman Empire, that any time that a, a, a revolutionary leader would step up and challenge the authority of Rome, that leader would be taken down, but so would his whole family, so would any of his followers. It was absolute devastation of them all. And so we see that happening here. Whenever, they hear, whenever David's family hears about uh, David's status, They know what that means for them. And so they all go on the run. So they all go on the run and they find David and David takes them and they end up as political refugees in Moab. And David goes to the king of Moab and he asks them for, um, for sanctuary there in the stronghold that they might be, uh, kept and protected there as long as he is, as long as they are refugees. Now there's an interesting little side note here, just something that hadn't occurred to me until I read some scholars, but um, just an interesting little detail. David might have been able to get refuge for himself and his family, the king of Moab, because these Moabites were actually some of David's, uh, distant cousins or relatives. Does anybody remember a very famous Moabite who was, who happened to be a part of David's, uh, heritage? It was a woman named Ruth. If you remember the story of Ruth, which we have in the book of Ruth, it was the story about these, these Israelite men who had gone and married uh, 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 these, these Moabite women, right? these women from Moab. Uh, the men died. Their mother, who was now uh, a widow and also childless, decided to go back to her home. That was her best case of survival. All of her daughter-in-laws abandoned her except for one daughter-in-law named Ruth. Right? who went back with her to Israel and eventually married a wealthy man named Boaz. And we know from, this, from the Old Testament and also from the Gospels that it was through the lineage of Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz that we get David. And then eventually that we get Jesus right and so it's kind of kind of an interesting aside there david goes to some of his distant cousins and it might just be through that that odd interesting detail in david's own story why the, why his family is able to get sanctuary in moab because after all they're family right they're their kin on his on his father's side So, David goes to to some of their distant cousins there in Moab. He gets sanctuary for his family. But there's also this detail, too. It says in verse 2, it says, In addition, every man who was desperate or in debt or discontented, I can only assume that that means discontented with the reign of Saul, rallied around him and he became their leader. And it says there are about 400 men now around David. And so what we see happening here is that David, as he is on the run, uh, as God's chosen king, right, as a righteous man, he's on the run, and he starts to attract this this um, this small army, but this small new community around himself. What, what scholars tell us is, is you can see here how as God has shifted his hand from uh, from Saul onto David, and as he has shifted his true, kingdom, from the reign of Saul onto David as his true king, we see here as David is on the run that uh, he is also building up a new Israel. He's building up a new nation around his true chosen king in that kingdom, and that's what we see happening here. So David on the run, his family comes and joins him because they are refugees as well, but also these men who uh, who are dissatisfied with Saul, are gathering around him as well. And here's the first, the first big point that I want us to see about this righteous minority, this small group of people who are, who, uh, who are following God, which is this. The righteous man builds community with God's people. Now, we can say righteous man and woman, right? But I'm, I'm just drawing this from David. And so the righteous man or righteous woman builds community with God's people, this is a characteristic. This is one of the, the identifying marks of someone who is a righteous man or woman, of someone who is, uh, who is endeavoring to follow God, to, uh, o- to follow and be faithful to their covenant with God and to obe- be obedient to God's commandments, is that these are people who will attract to themselves and also be attracted to community with other, uh, others who are following after God. You know, if you were with us in the past couple weeks, I, I, I said how in chapter 21, we see David really acting more out of desperation than acting out of obedience to God. But as we move into chapter 22, we can see there's some subtle hints that David has repented from that uh, desperate acting and is, and is now following God again. There's a, there's a couple of hints that actually aren't in this passage, but they come in the Psalms. Whenever you go to the Psalms, um, Oh goodness! I the the numbers just fled my mind. I'm bad at numbers. I'm really really bad at numbers. I think it's Psalm 34, and the other one is is, is in the 50s. Um, it's either 32 or 34. That one's in the 50s. But if you go and you read these psalms, you know some of the psalms will have um, uh, uh, this this inscription at the top. It'll say you know written by this person for whoever else or whatever. And there's a couple, and like I said, I believe it's 34 it, that describe um, David writing this psalm in light of his, uh, his fleeing from Gath or his fleeing to, to Moab, right? And so in the Psalms, we have these hints here that as David uh, ran after what we see happening in 21, that he started to kind of come to his senses. And we can go and read those Psalms of how he's now turning his attention to God who provides for him. So we get some hints there, but we also get a hint in this, in that uh, in verse 5 it says that the prophet Gad, we don't know who Gad is, There's the only mention of him, right? But the prophet Gad uh, says something to David, and David listens. And so that's another subtle hint too, because one of the marks of a faithful king of Israel was that he, had, he was surrounded by priests and prophets who were delivering to him the word and will of God, and he would listen to it. So that's another subtle hint here. Uh, that David is, is, has repented from his desperate acting, it is now walking in righteousness, righteousness and obedience once again. And so as we see a man of God walking in righteousness and walking in obedience to God, one of the natural results of that is that uh, others who are seeking to walk in righteousness and obedience are, are attracted to and, and a new community is built uh, around that righteous man. Because this is what righteous people do. In Psalm chapter 1, one of my all-time favorite of the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 1, listen to what it says in verse 1. It says, "'How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked.'" or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. And then as it goes on in the rest of the psalm, it describes, but instead, here's what the righteous do. It talks about delighting in the law of the Lord and and, and different things. But what we see right off the bat in, in, in Psalm 1, verse 1, is something that the righteous do not do. And what is the thing that the righteous do not do? They do not fellowship with the wicked. That's what it says. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers? What, uh, what Hebrew scholars and scholars of the Psalms point out here is that there is a progression in, uh, in, the, in, in the intimacy being described with the person who uh, does not do these things. Right? There's a walking then, but then there is a standing. So now a person has gone from merely, you can almost have the image of like passing through, right? Passing through the advice of the wicked to now standing, right? There, there's more presence there. And then sitting in the company of mockers. Scholars of the Psalms call this a, call this a descent happening. But what it tells us as, it, as Psalm 1 begins to describe the life of the righteous, and what makes the righteous difference different, right off the bat is this, not fellowshipping. with wickedness. No, this does not mean that, okay, well, if I'm righteous, uh, then I can't work in an office where there are any wicked, right? I cannot have friends who are not Christians or anything, these things. I'm not talking about that. What it is talking about here is, is the people which make up the, the core community of your life. The people, the, the, Community which makes up the core fellowship, right? Where the the most intimate parts of your life. This is what it's talking about here, and the righteous do not do it. And so let me ask you this Are you in community with others who are following God? Are you in community with others who are following God? This is something really important for us to understand. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. A Lone Ranger Christian is a dead Christian, okay? There's no such thing as being able able to go at it on your own. This is why church fellowship is absolutely essential. You know, we, we talked about how uh, last, last year, during, whenever the, the pandemic started, and we had to uh, they had the stay-at-home order, we had to shut down church, move to live stream for a while. Something that we talked about that, that I said in the live streams almost every single week was that this is a temporary measure, right? This is a temporary compromise until we are able to meet together again. And now we did eventually come back together, right? And, 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 and now we are here, right? But why couldn't we have just stayed online? Wasn't it so much more convenient to be able to watch church at home in your pajamas? <laughs> it was more convenient for me, too. It was, it was nice for a little while. It's, it's, it's much more of an inconvenience to have to do this. To all, all of you, our volunteers, who, who, who set up and tear down and who, who, who work so hard in the nursery to love and teach and care for our kids, wasn't being able to just stay home so much easier? But the reason that we sacrifice time and the, the reason that we uh, put in the effort and the reason that we choose the more inconvenient option of getting together and having to rub shoulders with people that are different from us so that you know, maybe sometimes they're not the most likable people or whatever else. Right? The reason that we do it is because Lone Ranger Christians are, are, are eventually going to be dead. Community, fellowship is essential. It's something that we need. It's a blessing from God. Are you in community with others who are following God? We see this here in the story of, of, of David, how there uh, there is a new community being formed around him, but we also see it in, in the New Testament. One of my favorite verses, Paul writes in 2 Timothy uh, 2.22, he says, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But then he says this, to pursue righteousness and so on, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What this reminds me of is that the Christian life is a journey that has to be done with friends. The Christian life is a journey, right? It, it, is, it is us where we come into a relationship with Christ, right? And then empowered by his Holy Spirit, walking with Christ, we now move on in life and we now, you know, we, we go on in the journey of life, uh, pursuing him as our, uh, 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 following after Jesus and then being changed into his likeness, right? Being made more like him and, and carrying out the good works that he has for us. So we go on this journey, but, but we don't go on this journey alone. It's a journey that we have to go on with friends. It's a journey that we have to go on with other church members, with with a community that we are in covenantal relationship with. It is absolutely necessary. You see, this is something that you can see not only in the scriptures, in David or in Paul's uh, letters, but it's something that we see all over life. In, in, in the stories that we write and tell, the greatest stories uh, of, of journeys and adventures are the ones that are done with, with friends, right? Think of the Lord of the Rings and, and, and the journey that they went on, the great quest that they, and adventure that they went on and accomplished. Wouldn't have been possible if Frodo would have left with the ring on his own, right? That would have been a dead hobbit on the edge of the Shire. He wouldn't have made it very far, right? But instead, But he went with friends. He had Sam. He had Gandalf. He had the Fellowship. Right. And then even within the fellowship, you had these, these deeper friendships forming. Think about uh, think of Star Wars, right? And the friendships of Luke and Han and Han and Chewie and, and, and that we see being built and formed. And how the friendships are not just incidental and they're not just there to provide humor, but they are essential to the adventure, to the journey being accomplished. Right. Think of Woody and Buzz, right? We can just go on and on and on about how uh, about how essential friendship is to accomplishing any journey. and the same is true in the Christian life. And so let me encourage you, seek that community. If you're listening and you and you're thinking about your life and' you're, and you're understanding you know what my my life is lacking in that in that community. Maybe you you have a lot of friends, but you don't necessarily have friends that would fall into this category here, where it, it is friends with whom we are together walking alongside one another, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace, right? Where we are together encouraging and challenging each other to follow Christ in greater obedience. Maybe you're lacking that in your life. So let me encourage you to pursue it, to seek it out. Find a David, right? Find a David that you can rally around, somebody who's following after God, and you can follow after God with them. Let me encourage you, like I said, we're going to be talking about groups, and we're going to be launching groups here soon. Get ready for groups, and, and then whenever we, 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 we get them going, join in one and be dedicated to it, right? Make it a core part of your life because the righteous build community with others who are following God. On the other hand, whenever we look at Saul, we see a very stark contrast. We see a very stark contrast when we look at Saul. Who, we had David, who's following after God, and, and being a man following after God, a, there's a community being built around him of others who were discontented and wanting to follow after God as well, be a part of God's kingdom, not Saul's kingdom. right? On the other hand, we have Saul, who, in, in contrast to, being, uh, to having a community built around him, he is going into deeper and deeper isolation. When we look at the story of Saul, not just in 22, but over the past several chapters, we see a man who is increasingly isolated. First, he's being isolated from David as, as he is uh, growing jealous and threatened by the popularity, popularity of, of David. And then as he becomes isolated from David, he becomes isolated from Jonathan, his own son. He's separated from him. And then here in chapter 22, we see that he becomes even more isolated from his top cabinet members, from his own most loyal men, where he's standing there and he's berating them, saying, you know, you think David is going to give you more wealth than I've given you? You think he's going to give you more horses than I've given you? You think he's going to give you better positions in this kingdom than I've given you? And then later on in the chapter, whenever he orders that all of the priests in uh, in Ahimelech's family be executed, his men said no. His men said no, we're not doing it, which is then when Doeg stepped up. You see, so Saul's being isolated from David, Jonathan, from his own men, and then by his murderous decree, isolated from the priesthood. So here we have the picture of a man who, is, who, who, who like I said before, is slowly, slowly, slowly uh, retreating into a community of none, of being all alone, to where is, we can look, and, it's, and, and Doeg, the Edomite, is his only friend. Saul orders the priest to be executed, and his men refuse. But then Doeg, Doeg the Edomite, steps up, because he heard what Saul said. He heard that those men who who were supposedly siding with David and who weren't listening to him were going to be losing all of their government benefits. They're going to be losing all the good handouts and the positions of power and the wealth and, and, and all those little benefits that came along with being one of, one of Saul's men working in his cabinet or working in, in his kingdom and so on. And so here you had Doeg who said, well, I don't want to lose those things. I like those things. And so he stepped up to do the tyrants' dirty work. Just as an aside, there's a lesson that we can learn here that while we might always point at the tyrants, while we might always point at the people at the top who, who, are, who are the enemy and working in terrible fashion, we must understand that there are also always going to be weak and wicked people who will be working beneath them, who will be hungry for power. And at any little taste of power that they get will become power hungry, which is what we see in Doeg. He wanted that wealth. He, he didn't want to lose all those benefits. And so he said, as a, the weak little man he was, well, I'll step up and do your dirty work. He did it. But then once he got a little bit of a, of, a, of a taste of that power, what did he do? He went even further. He went to Nob. He slayed all the families. Saul didn't tell him to do that. But this is what happens to the lackeys and those who will follow Tyrants. But who is Saul really attacking? Who is Saul really attacking whenever he slays the priests? Is he attacking David? If we look at it with, uh, not, blind, not blind, if we look at it in a very narrow sense, right, that's what it looks like in, in the immediate context because, because he's chasing after David. And he's angry that Ahimelech had, you know, regardless of how much Ahimelech knew or how how conscious he was that he was helping David, he was angry that Ahimelech had helped David uh, outrun Saul and get away, right? And so it seems as though, just in the immediate context and looking at it very narrowly, that uh, Saul is further waging war and he's getting retribution against David by killing the priests. But ultimately, is that what he is really doing? Because consider this, those priests were not the priests of David, they were the priests of Israel, They were the priesthood of the nation, not the priesthood of David. Those were not David's priests. And so in a sense, it's not just retribution and Saul attacking someone who was formerly one of his generals. It is Saul attacking his nation, in a sense. It is Saul turning his back on and attacking his own people. But in an even greater and ultimate sense than that, these these priests over Israel are really priests and they they are representatives of whom? Of God. That was the role of the priesthood. The priesthood was to be uh, to be intermediaries. They were to be um, they were to be advocates on behalf of Israel to God, but also representatives of God to the people. This was the reason that that they had to go to the tabernacle and to the priesthood and to the priests to offer their sacrifices and to worship and so on, because because that because it was in the tabernacle and in the priesthood that God came to meet his people. And so in an ultimate sense, whenever Saul attacks and kills the priest, what he is doing is not just retribution against David. It is not just an attack on his own people, but it is an assault and an attack. It is going to war with God. And so here's the second major point that I want us to see, which is that the wicked are isolated from God and fellowship with his enemies. The wicked are isolated from God and fellowship with his enemies. That is what we see Saul doing here. As Saul, increasingly, over the past several chapters in, in here in 22, as he is growing distant from God, as he is growing more and more disobedient, we see a correlation with him uh, becoming more and more distant from God's people. Becoming more and more distant from, from God's people until whenever we have here in 22, he, the only friend he has left is Doeg. Right? So there's a correlation between Saul's isolation from God and God's people, something that we all need to take note of and be very careful uh, with. Are you in isolation from God's people? That's a bad sign that there might be some distance between you and God. Whenever you look around at your life, are your only friends dough eggs? Ask yourself, are you surrounded by David's or dough egg's? It's an important question for us to, to ask and, and look at our lives. Are you surrounded by people who are encouraging you to follow after God in righteousness, in obedience? Are you looking at people who you can share your sins with and they can remind you of God's grace, encourage you, and, the, and, and challenge you and, and help you to continue to, to repent and, and walk in greater obedience? Or are you surrounded by doegs? People who could care less, and people who will even help you in your rebellion, people who will celebrate not following God and call you in to join in with uh, with abandoning your your love and your covenant with God. Are you surrounded by Davids or Doegs? You know, there's something that the uh, that the social media hustlers say. Um, you know, those people like Gary V and all the other ones. They, they say they say things like your your network is your net worth, all right? And it's kind of silly, you know, in, in all their posts and all. But there's a little bit of a truth to that, right? And I think there's a little bit of a truth to that when it comes to the spiritual life, maybe even more than than business or anything else, which is that your net your network, right? The people that, like I said, form the the, the deepest uh, parts of the the, uh, the most intimate forms of community in your life will have a tremendous influence over your direction in life, and over your direction in whether you are following Christ or whether you are following idols, whether you are following the world. And so are you surrounded by Davids or Doegs? Like I said, Saul has completely turned against the Lord, and the results are horrible. It's it's a very hard scene. It's a hard passage to read about in the second half of, of, of chapter 22 whenever there's this genocide carried out whenever Saul turns completely against the Lord. But we need to take note of what God is doing in this passage. We don't also, if we only look at what the people are doing, but we don't ask, what is God doing? Then we're going to miss out on something. What is God doing in this passage? On the surface, you might be saying, I don't see God at all. But God is doing something here, even if we don't see it on the surface. Here's what he's doing. If you started this series with us, you might remember this. Or if you've read 1 Samuel before, you might remember this. But all the way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, we are presented this picture of Israel where it is being, there was no king, uh, and it was being ruled by a class of elites who were unrighteous, not following after God at all. And in the priesthood, so in the religious elites, you had the family of the, uh, the priest named Eli, right? Eli the priest and his family who were uh, his sons who were terrible, wicked priests, right? They were really, really bad. And in cha- chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, uh, God comes to this priest and he says, because of you and your sons, because of the corruption in your family, I'm going to completely do away with it. He said, you guys have broken covenant with me. You have led my nation astray. You, you are terrible leaders. And so because of your sin, I'm bringing judgment down on you and your family, right? The just God is bringing down uh, his, his His verdict on this family. And what do we see happening here in this passage? Though it is being carried out by Saul and Doeg the Edomite, we see the fulfillment of God's word in chapter two, because the this family, the, these priests, the, those eighty five men who were executed, were the family of Eli. They were it was that that wicked, unrighteous family who was taking advantage of and leading the people astray. And so here's something that we need to see. Even in his opposition, even in his raging, and even in his trying to uh, wage war against God, Saul is fulfilling God's word. Now, we need to be very clear about this, and we, need to, and we need to hold a couple of things in tension. Number one, God is not the author of evil, and God is not uh, morally responsible. God is not uh, culpable for, uh, for the injustice that happened here. God did not do it. Saul and Doeg the Edomites are responsible for the wickedness that they carried out. However, in their attempt to wage war against God, God used that attempt to fulfill his own word. Do you see that here? There is, there's, um, though he's not responsible for the evil, there's a clear fulfillment of God's word. There's a commentator named Dale Ralph Davis, and he said it this way. He said, put it together and one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. As I said earlier in this sermon, this story presents us with a, a stark realism about wickedness and about evil and about opposition to God's kingdom. However, it also presents us with a realism for how or, or for why we should be hopeful, even in spite of the wickedness and opposition of the world. Because of this, because even whenever the world or because even whenever God's enemies or whenever our enemies try to wage war against God and against us, they are not outside of God's control. And even whenever God's enemies try to wage war against his kingdom, they can only bring to pass what he has said will be done. You say, well, you know, okay, so I can see how that happens here in first Samuel. Right. Right. and, but it's hard to see how that can happen in, in our lives today. How can God be using everything today and, and, and even the opposition that we face only to fulfill his own word, right? How can we really know that God can use uh, any of the horrible examples that we can point to today or in world history of evil people doing, uh, committing acts of atrocity and, and say that that is God fulfilling his word in some sense, well, I'm not saying that we should go and investigate every single case of evil and say that this is how God fulfills His word. I think that would be inappropriate, right? This is something that we that we look at as a, as a general rule and a general truth that we hold on to. But Scripture is not telling us now go and find every specific purpose, right? So many of these things are questions that will only be answered on the other side of eternity. But the trust and the the confidence that we can have in knowing that God will always remain in control, and that God will even use the actions of wicked people to accomplish his good purposes, how can we hold on to confidence and certainty in that? Because of this. Because even in the most wicked act which has ever been committed in the history of of the world, God accomplished his most wonderful and good purpose. What was the most evil act that has ever been committed in the history of the world? It was the, uh, the crucifixion, the execution of the only righteous and perfect man who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. This is certainly the most evil action that has ever happened because, uh, because the, the most evil thing that someone could do would be to attack the most innocent person, right? We, we know this in our life all the time. So what could be greater than the only perfect man who was not just innocent, but who was, uh, who was completely morally perfect, who was righteous and had followed God? Certainly there could be no more evil than to attack that person. But in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the greatest evil that has ever been committed, we also see the greatest accomplishing of God's purposes. Because it is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that God accomplished his salvific uh, purposes for human history. Listen to what Peter preached in, in Acts chapter 2. In Peter 2 verse 23, Peter said, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, God knew. He planned it. His plans will not be thwarted. What does Peter say? You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see, Peter says it there in one verse together. He says, it was according to God's plan, wicked people did it. They're responsible for it. But what was the result? He says later on in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so what we see is that even in the greatest act of wickedness that has ever been committed, even in the greatest act of opposition to God that has ever been committed, God used that to accomplish his good will. What was his goodwill? That we might be saved. That we, who because of our sins and who because of our rebellion, Jesus had to die through his death, we might receive forgiveness for those sins if we repent and follow him in obedience. Friends, we can ask ourselves, are you surrounded by Davids and Doegs? But we must also ask, am I a David or a Doeg? Am I one of those who is opposing the kingdom of God? Am I walking, uh, following Jesus Christ in obedience, or am I walking in rebellion against him? Right? Am I one of those who would be standing, just observing him on the cross, maybe even mocking him on the cross, or am I falling down in worship before him at the cross? God used his enemy's wickedness to accomplish his salvation work. The question now is that if this salvation is available and offered to us in the work of Jesus Christ because of God's sovereignty and goodness, will you remain on the outside of his salvation or on the inside? Will you remain in rebellion or will you enter his kingdom in the only way that we may enter into it, which is through the work of Jesus Christ that has been accomplished for us? If you have accepted Jesus' work on your behalf, if you have laid your life down before him at the cross, repented of your sin, and you, you are now walking in obedience to him, then what that means for us is that we are now in, in, living in a community which is formed around the greater David, Jesus Christ. Right? We see David uh, bringing a community around himself, but he is only a picture of what Jesus can do right so now if you are in Christ we should all be in that community which is forming around him because if we do this uh, form in community near to Jesus Christ and close to one another, this is the key to surviving opposition even in our day as I said at the beginning of the sermon we are going the story teaches us how to survive opposition because we're living in a world where there is increasing opposition to uh, to the Christian message and to the Christian church the true Christian church. We can see this as secularization grows in our society and along with that um, ill will, right? And along with that disdain for the the Christian church and its message, right? And so as we see opposition and, uh, and, and disdain in our life today, and as we see it grow, however much God allows it to continue to grow, right? How are we going to survive it? How are we going to continue to stand? How are we going to make it for the long haul and go the distance? The key is being an intentional community. Intentional communities are necessary for surviving opposition. Because whenever the world turns against us, intentional communities will provide us a place to go to where there are people who are for us. Whenever the world or whenever our culture, whenever our cultural elites, whether they be in government or other institutions or whatever else, Right? Whenever they have disdain for us, having intentional communities being formed around Jesus Christ will give us a place to where we can escape the disdain and find love. Right? Where we can escape the hatred and the misunderstanding and find understanding. Where we can find belonging. Where we can find community. Right? Friends, forming intentional communities are absolutely necessary if you are going to survive the opposition today. And not just the opposition today, but the opposition that will come if we see the trends continue. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but what I'm trying to do is trying to inspire us to, uh, to building and to working in and to being com- uh, committed to these intentional communities because this is not something that's just a nice idea, but this is, this is a proposition for us as Redeemer, uh, a, a project which can have a real impact on the world. Because we can look at how Christians throughout the centuries and throughout history have done this very thing as a mechanism for surviving the hostility that they faced in the world around them. What did they do? They formed intentional communities in their families, and then the families joining together in groups of families and singles and whoever else, right? Coming together to have a place where they could, where they could build an alternate society, to build an alternate city where within these communities, regardless of what the world follows and preaches and, and, and does out there, we follow Christ, right? Regardless of what they teach here, we teach Christ and we pursue him in all of life, right? Regardless of, of what hostility face here, we have love. Here we have acceptance, we have grace based community, we have encouragement of one another and, 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 and inspiration and exhortation to continue going on the journey when one of us wants to quit. You can read about this. In one of the most, I think, some of the most beautiful examples is when you read about the intentional communities of Christians coming together in uh, these different uh, uh, bubbles and pockets of resistance in the various different nations of the former Soviet bloc, in Czechoslovakia, Romania, and all these other other nations that were underneath the brutal oppression of the the Soviet regime. What you see happening there is that as the Soviet regime cracked down on Christianity and the church, is that uh, the true church did not go away, but they started to form together these intentional communities in in their homes, um, among their families and others. And what they would do in these communities is they would continue to teach scripture, right? They, they actually formed underground seminaries where they would come together and have seminars, learning about the Bible, learning about uh, what it means to take the Bible into life, into what it means to have a family that is built on Scripture, what it means to have businesses that are built on Scripture, what it means to have uh, a, a whole society that is built on Scripture, what it means to, to uh, on the one hand, obey uh, Caesar, what it means to obey the government as we are taught, but then how to resist tyrants based upon scripture. They started doing these things, forming education in these communities, right? They they retained a uh, a, a sense of, of culture and art as they looked at how how God has given us beauty and, and, and called us to cultivate beauty, right? They did these things, and what you see happening is that whenever those regimes finally fell because of, uh, of these growing communities, do you know what happened? It wasn't, there was, there was no desolation of culture because now these intentional communities, which were once in hiding, could come out into the light. And guess what? There was already a new culture ready to flourish because they had been preserving scripture, education, art, family, economy, and so on. And so the nations didn't just fall. There was a beautiful new culture ready to flourish, which had been cultivated and built through those intentional communities. Whenever somebody would have been caught by the secret police and brought in for interrogations, tortured, uh, be deprived of sleep or food or whatever else, and they would come out of that traumatic experience, do you know what they would do? They would go to the home where their intentional community was, and then those people would join around them together in prayer. Right? They would join around them together in encouragement. Very often, those people would, would cave in and give up information. They would give names. They would give locations. But you know what? Even though they had failed, and even though they had cracked under the pressure, they could go back to their intentional community. And because it was a community which was based on the grace of Jesus Christ, which, you know what, is good news for failures, they could give grace to the failure. They could love them. They could tell them, it's okay. Tell us what names you gave. Tell them what what, what locations. We're going to hide those people. We're going to move locations. We're going to work this out. It's okay that you failed. We're here for you. We don't turn our back on each other. Don't you want a community like that where you can go with your failures, where you can go with your struggles and not be, not be beat down, not be misunderstood, not be encouraged to embrace them like our world will, but instead in- encouraged, right? Picked back up on your feet, dusted off, given food, given rest, and, and, and then saying, all right, now let's, let's get back on the road together. Intentional communities are absolutely necessary, not just for a flourishing Christian life, but also for surviving opposition to the kingdom of God. Friends, do you want to go the distance? Do you want to pursue righteousness? Then do it as Paul said, along with those who also call on the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we come before you now. Lord, we thank you that because of what we see in the gospel, of how you used even the wicked intentions of your enemies to only accomplish the purposes of your kingdom, Lord. Because of how we can see at the end of the gospel, we can take hope in and we can uh, take certainty in and comfort. And that no matter what we face today, Lord, that that, uh, the enemies to your kingdom today who wage war against you and who disdain us, Father, they are not working outside of your good purposes, that nothing can thwart, that nothing can override, that nothing can outpower your sovereignty. So Father, let it let that truth give us hope. Let it give us fortitude. Let it give us courage to continue. And Father, let us join together as people of hope, as people of the gospel, or as people feebly and and imperfectly trying to pursue righteousness. Bring us together, Lord, around Jesus Christ. Raise up Davids who will will help us to, to follow Jesus together. Lord, turn us more into Davids and not Doegs, so that through these intentional communities of men and women joining together, Lord, we might see you spread your kingdom we might see you cultivate and grow a, a new and beautiful alternate society, an alternate culture, one, Lord, which can replace the desolate culture brought about by, uh, by secularism. Let it be a place where we can bring our, our wounds and our failures and, and experience healing and restoration. Lord, and above all, let it be a place where your glory is magnified through our suffering, through our obedience, through our repentance when we fail, and your name be spread and your kingdom, kingdom's work be accomplished. We pray this in your name.